Hello, everybody. This is Dan Woods at the RSA 2019 conference. I'm talking to Tom Kellerman, Chief Cybersecurity Officer at Carbon Black. We're going to talk today about the questions that we've been asking everybody else. And uh, Tom has an interesting background. But uh, first, why don't we go and tell me, you know, where you come to this position from? What was your background in cybersecurity? Sure. Uh, I've been in cybersecurity 22 years. Um, I, was an, I was a hacker for 10 years before that, and I was turned by a college professor at University of Michigan. Um, my first position was at the World Bank Treasury security team, uh, where I was for seven years, where we were investigating the future of electronic finance and the risks and externalities associated with connecting all the central banks of the world to the internet. Uh, the World Bank and the central banking community at that point was very much caught up in PKI, otherwise known as a non-distributed modern-day blockchain. <laughs> And um, we realized that there were a number of ways in which that could be compromised. And from there, I was one of the founders of Core Security, Core Impact. Before the Metasploit framework, there was something else that people used as a skeleton key for the internet. I trained uh, government and banking red teams on how to get in and out of systems and develop uh, exploits for vulnerabilities, et cetera, et cetera. And then I was at Trend Micro as CSO. And then I spent two years as a venture capitalist investing in tech transfer out of the intelligence community, the cybersecurity community, banks, and now I am, I think, in my last job ever, um, the best job ever, Carbon Black, the Chief Cybersecurity Officer. Well, that's great. So now, what, uh, how could you use the NIST framework of um, identify, uh, protect, detect, respond, and recover to explain the product footprint of Carbon Black? What's Carbon Black all about? So Carbon Black actually is a 16-year-old firm whose technology came out of the NSA. Um, the founder and my boss, Mike Viscuso, the chief strategy officer, was on the tailored access division of NSA, which is a euphemism for um, the offensive side of the ball. And uh, Carbon Black actually pioneered the original protection capabilities, the whitelisting capabilities that are mandated, um, iron boxing as it's called nowadays, with its uh, CV protection capability. Uh, Carbon Black has also pioneered the response capabilities associated with endpoint detection and response um, with uh, Carbon Black's original product, um, which is CV response. And then now what we're doing is we're morphing into a cloud platform company that provides you with five unique capabilities delivered through a singular agent that can allow you to do protection, detection, response, as well as um, querying your entire infrastructure and being able to really assess the, the state of play of, of the hygiene of your infrastructure, but also be able to open a command line interface to suppress any illicit activity. Well, good. So that's uh, we're going to have a lot of fun talking about these questions because they go directly to the, the heart of your portfolio. So the first question I have is about zero trust. And so, you know, the, the idea of zero trust is really interesting. And once you first hear about it, it's really exciting. And you think, oh, instead of having this zone of trust, you know, uh, that's created by firewalls or, or some other mechanisms that, that, that protect you from the outside, you will abandon that concept and instead be suspicious of everyone. And then basically create a sort of personalized zone of security around every individual based on what you know about them. Mm -hmm. And you would think that in such a model, something would go away, you know, that you would no longer need the mechanisms that create the zone of trust. But in fact, in most companies, if they implemented zero trust, they would actually still have all of the cybersecurity they need today. Yep. And, and it, it nothing goes away. So... 
you know, what is then does cyber, what, what then does zero trust mean in practice? I mean, it seems like it's just another additive sort of capability, you know, how does, what's the right way to think about it? I think it's an important shift, uh, especially when, since, you know, cloud computing, uh, mobility, and the development of applications have allowed for hackers to bypass network security and network defenses in the zone of trust that you described. Um, given that I'm from DC, um, this is very much a secret service model, the zero trust model. Um, it's about in increasing uh, visibility, it's about continuous monitoring, it's about um, ensuring that those who have the keys to the castle are the right ones at the right time uh, to access services or credentials. And also, I think um, it goes to the point that given that the insider threat has been one of the biggest challenges facing the cybersecurity community, there's also been the digital insider threat, which is where the hackers have remained on systems, where they've, they've maintained persistence on systems through the deployment of steganography or remote access trojans or secondary command and control in a sleep cycle. And so you have to have the capacity to have zero trust vis-a-vis east-west traffic, those things that move within your home, within your your perimeter within your environment. You also have to be able to be able to suppress activity. So, uh, one of the design principles of Carbon Black, which is foundationally tangential to zero trust, is intrusion suppression. So, intrusion suppression basically states: um, Can you de detect, divert, contain, and then hunt an adversary unbeknownst to an adversary? And to achieve that, not only are we investing heavily in R and D, and we're, we're trying to uh, create multiple capabilities through a singular agent, and obviously increase the tamper resistance of that agent, um, but we've opened ourselves up and our API up to major security players, and we have uh, literally over 160, 170 integrations with security companies in themselves that allow for a more holistic uh, response, um, that allow us to, beyond improving the endpoint security posture of an organization, we can integrate with the major firewall vendors, we can integrate with the major IPS vendors, we can integrate with the major authentication vendors to provide that zero trust model. But from simplistically, zero trust to me is continuous monitoring, enhanced visibility, and the capacity to suppress an adversary when they've already bypassed your perimeter. So it sounds like that what, it, what you're really saying is zero trust is just the rational assumption that people are going to get through and that even inside your zone of trust, you have to keep checking, keep monitoring, assume somebody's gotten through and keep looking for them. That's right. It's a secret service model. Your, your, your perimeter is going to be bypassed. They inevitably will get in, whether it's the good guy turned rogue or the good guy's device or gal's device that has been compromised and set to attack your infrastructure from inside out. You have to be able to stop the attacks that emanate from inside out and then east west. And only in a world that where you are completely in the cloud where there's no, there's no essential on-premise, could you actually become a, an, a perimeterless company? Yes and no. Uh, depends whether you're a hybrid cloud or a public cloud. Remember, when you move to a public cloud environment, it's much like moving to a condominium complex in a tough neighborhood in a major city. Um, you cannot rely on the concierge and the elevator locks to protect you from the fact that your neighbor had a house party and you didn't leave your door locked. Um, at all, at all. So the metaphor there being you are still responsible for well, yeah, the security of the endpoints and the applications. You need to monitor those. And if right. you can't handle it, you should get an alert triage service or an MDR vendor to do so for you, which is also one of the aspects of Carbon Black that I'm most passionate about is our integrations and the utility of our capability by the major MSSPs and IR vendors. Um, not only does that improve our capacity to develop the capability, enhance it based on their experiences in the wild as they hunt, uh, with our EDR capability, but it also informs our predictive analytics with the telemetry they gather from those excursions, I would call them. So, and then for the people who aren't as nerdy about cybersecurity as we are, 
Let's explain all three sure. of those acronyms. MS MSSP? Forgive me. A managed Security Services Provider, a Managed Security Provider, and MDR is Managed Detection and Response Provider. Uh, these are folks that essentially you can hire to, to do security for your corporation, uh, for your business, et cetera, et cetera, um, and monitor everything that's occurring within you, and then actually can respond to events that happen, like Whack and Hut back in the day. Right, right. Um, we provide them with our hunt capability. It's an EDR capability. Um, an EDR. Endpoint detection response yeah. capability, which allows you to capture all of the unfiltered data, all of the activities, all of the behaviors that are occurring on an endpoint. Imagine like CCTV footage coupled with an alarm system that allows a bodyguard to manifest in a, in a set specific to the level of risk. And then the IR is incident response. And incident response is essentially triage. You know, what are you going to do when you're dealing with a home invasion? Are the cops coming? Okay. Well, so now the next question I want to move on to is portfolio pruning. It seems like we've only had additions to the cybersecurity portfolio. We haven't had any pruning of capabilities yet where a new capability actually replaces an old capability. Many people have said, you know, antivirus is dead. We still have plenty of antivirus investment in technology. And it seems like that all the people who were supposed to be dead are still have big booths here at RSA. So, um, you know, what... I'm smiling. Yeah, so, so what happens... Uh, you know, when we, when will we ever get to a meaningful pruning of our cybersecurity portfolios? Or uh, I have a follow-up to that after I hear your first answer. So I think this is going to go to a question that we should discuss later, which is the whole governance cycle or what CISOs are doing. Um, because you have CIOs and CISOs who have a religious relationship with certain vendors. Uh, and because they were the ones to deploy these capabilities for the security of their enterprise, uh, they do not have a willingness to rip it out because uh, essentially they would be admitting that their baby is, is uh, weak and vulnerable to attacks in the wild. Um, look, I came from Trend Micro, a great company. Um, I realized when at Trend Micro they could stop 95% of what was going on in the wild. But as you realize that you are a significant corporation or that you do business with a significant corporation and you realize that you will be targeted by nation-state adversaries or the elite criminal syndicates of the Russian dark web, Brazilian dark web, at all, at all, um, you also need to respect the fact that the 5% of attacks you will be facing regularly uh, cannot be thwarted by those legacy capabilities and capability sets. Part of the challenge of RSA is in order to fix the 5% problem, you have thousands of smaller vendors who are trying to provide uh, silver bullets to add on to these large vendors, hoping that they get acquired, hoping that they can actually become the, the answer to the critical gap in the analytics and in the behavioral detections of those major vendors. Um, I'm hoping that this is the year of an awakening, but it's going to require that no longer are CIOs the, the bosses of CISOs. Right now you have a governance crisis in cybersecurity. Um, you have, in most cases, heads of security reporting to CIOs. That's your defensive coordinator reporting to your offensive coordinator. CIOs nowadays are basically chief financial officers. They're looking for increased efficiency, increased resiliency, increased access to services. They're all about uptime. And what they don't respect or appreciate is that the CISO may actually challenge uh, that new mobile app development. <laughs> Uh, the new protocol that's enabled, the new remote user set that's been espoused, et cetera, et cetera. And so here we sit. Um, I hope this is the So, but what's the government, how would you describe the, what, what is the tension in the governance crisis? CISOs don't have their own budgets. 
and they can never say no to a CIO. A CISO could say, this is the craziest project in the world. You're expanding the attack surface of our corporation by doing this thing, Mr. Mrs. CIO. And that person still has the authority to tell them to sit down and shut up. Got it. There, there is no individuality uh, in the capacity or in the authorities, nor resources that are about. A CIO basically gives breadcrumbs uh, from the table to the CISO community. Less than 10% of, of, of IT budgets are being spent currently on cybersecurity in, in an internet environment that is incredibly hostile, um, where the FBI's number one criminal priority is still cybercrime, but prosecution rates are less than 2%. Got it. Now, um, one of the things that uh, that you know could lead to pruning is pruning of vendors, not necessarily pruning of capabilities, mm -hmm. because people consolidate things. Um, and the other thing that you mentioned, and and uh, I would love to get your take on, is um, related to that question, which is the prospects for integration. Now, it seems to me that most of the meaningful integration that's taken place has taken place inside the umbrella of a vendor. So inside, you know, a Zscaler or uh, a Fortinet or, or, or uh, you know, Trend Micro or whoever, there has been integration meaningfully of large amounts of capabilities. But if you talk about the standards across vendors, maybe there's some sort of event rep reporting or some other sort of APIs developed, but there's not enough context exposed to have a meaningful integration. Valid. And, and so... It seems to me, in that context, the only way you're going to you're going to get certain partnerships that will lead to certain kind of non-trivial but not that significant, not 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 you know transformational integrations, and you, what you'll really get is consolidation inside of vendors, and will you'll a CISO will be able to prune their vendors while getting the same amount of capabilities. Completely agree, which is why at Carbon Black, and you can see this on the show floor at our booth. Uh, we have an entire section dedicated to our integrations. We've opened up our API for folks to integrate with us. Uh, there are hundreds of vendors that have done so, not just to capture our customer base from their perspective, but also uh, to enable this contextually holistic uh, suppression of activity across both of our infrastructures as they relate to the wild. So uh, one of the major reasons I'm part of Carbon Black is because of that uh, culture of integration. Um, in addition, we have an entire defender community of 20,000 folks who are regularly using our hunt capabilities that are sharing TTPs and watch lists, as we call them, within our infrastructure to produce the, improve the predictive analytics, not just of Carbon Black, but of all the folks that have integrated with our APIs. So your, your, so your strategy, you're saying that you actually do have meaningful context provided by your APIs. We do. And you can allow people to do meaningful integrations. We do. And then you can come check out each integration at our booth. Uh, not for all of them, but I think there's 24 to 30 um, partners of ours who have illustrated through a demonstration of capability and joint demonstration capabilities at our booth. So you're saying that, that it's possible to have better integration of cybersecurity capabilities without having, you know, uh, a few vendors dominate. Completely think it has to be the way. It has to be the answer. In addition to that, why? It has to be that way because you cannot be um, evangelical as it relates to your own capability and your proprietary code. You have to be able to willing to civilize the cyberspace. Information sharing is the most important aspect of our community, and it needs to be improved because the hacker community shares as much, if not more, telemetry than we do through their dark web forums. Um, but as a practical matter, it seems like that there's a consolidation underway 
you know, where a few players are, are gaining more and more capabilities. They are. And integrating them. They are. That is what's occurring. Many of our major competitors are doing that. Um, but again, it's the same reason we don't provide services. Most of our competitors do provide services. And I find that hysterical. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but you're going to provide someone with a bulletproof vest and a bulletproof car, and then you're going to provide them with uh, <laughs> gravedigger services on the backside. Uh, it's crazy to me. Oh, when my technology fails you, don't worry, I got you. We're going to conduct incident response. Oh, you're going to dig my grave now. And you're, you're going you're gonna to make sure that I don't bleed out now because your stuff failed. It blows my mind. It's the same reason the major accounting firms, right, were, were essentially forced to um, split uh, back in the day after Enron. Right. Because so they could go back to just being one you can't thing. can't audit someone. Right. <laughs> provide the answer. Okay. Now, um, what the third question we we entered? I inserted an integration question in there, but the, the third question I'm, I've been asking everybody is about cloud migration. Um, how much of cybersecurity belongs in the cloud? You know, right now we have a, most of the checks that are written are written for stuff that's actually on premise, and you know there are certain companies like Zscaler, for example, who you know internally they run without a perimeter. Uh, because they are a complete cloud company, because that's there was their pedigree. All of their applications are in the cloud. That's right. And so, you know, you can, you know, if you're on a Wi-Fi network, you know, there is no firewall between you and the internet. You know, in um, in Zscaler's offices. Yep. Now, but most companies, you know, uh, can't deal with that model. They're they're going to have to have on-premise security. What what is going to uh, what sort of mi- what's the what's the migration to more cloud-based cybersecurity going to happen, and what are what's going to drive it, and what are the limits of that migration? So we have five thousand customers at Carbon Black, and we also have a huge bastion of hundreds of government agencies in the U.S. and Singapore and the U.K. and Germany, as well as major financial institutions, and then thirty-four of the Fortune one hundred, to that matter, um, that are not willing. Um, to move to uh, cloud. Um, and that's why we have um, CB protection and CB response on-prem. Uh, we respect um, their culture. We respect their risk threshold, um, for that matter, and their desire to maintain their own security operations centers uh, that are well-staffed, um, that are well-trained, and that are using uh, on-prem capabilities. And so we don't want to force people um, to have to make that choice. That being said, uh, the majority of our new customers uh, who we're proud to serve are moving to our predictive security cloud, which is that platform that provides multiple capabilities through a singular agent. Um, we eat our own dog food. So the corporate security of Carbon Black, not only is it protected by Carbon Black capabilities, but it's also protected by companies that we've integrated with. Um, and we, and we, we ensure that we are constantly not only eating our own dog food, but we are, we are practicing in that environment. Again, I don't think people have to be forced to do this. Uh, there's a hybrid answer to the, to the riddle. I think that the hybrid um, cloud model is probably best suited for those corporations and or industries that are most at risk. Um, I know for a fact from conversations with significant government agencies that the most sensitive government agencies are about three years out from moving to cloud-based security model. Um, cloud improves your capacity to be resilient in the face of robust systemic attacks. It speeds up your capacity to, to remediate phenomenon. It improves your predictive analytics, but also uh, it creates a gap in your capacity to create de- defense and depth around your assets 
when dealing with a truly sophisticated adversary who's leveraging zero-day capabilities or modular attack code. So, and then for those uh, companies, what is the hybrid part? What, 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 so what, most, what, stays, what stays behind so and why? So for the government model and, uh, and the financial sector major tier one institutions, I think that the most, their most sensitive critical assets, and let's discuss what those should be, um, are within a, a traditional segregated environment. And then more of their publicly exposed uh, cloud-based assets are more specific to non-critical functions. Um, so, for example, so like for a financial institution, the things that can put you out of business, high-frequency trading platforms, right. uh, the portfolio managers, endpoints that are actually leveraging positions in the international markets, uh, the wire transfer, um, SWIFT-based systems, et cetera, et cetera. The stuff that if it fails, you can be put out of business. Exactly, and remember, the worst-case scenario for a cyber attack is not failure and it's not theft. It's your environment being used to attack your constituency. It's it's your website, your network, your mail server now being turned against those who trust you. Um, this is happening more often than not, as we can speak of later regarding a new report we're putting out tomorrow. Got it. And so uh, I have three bonus questions, and let's get to the report. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first bonus question is ops discipline. Um, how many CISOs would be better off not spending on new capabilities, but instead spending on training, on, on using their existing tools better to improve their operational discipline, you know, configuration management, uh-huh. automation, um, uh, you know, uh, better analytics, understanding where they are. It, it seems like that, uh, you know, understanding how and when to patch. I concur. I think that we, we need to train as we would fight. Um, offense informs defense. Uh, most of the major attacks are successful because of a lack of ops discipline, of a lack of effective training, but there's something else missing here. Um, they need to conduct regular hunt exercises. They need to actually hunt for an adversary, regardless of whether they've been warned of said adversary existing in their environment. They need to proactively hunt. For example, the major banks that do have hunt teams are, are conducting hunts once a month. And those hunts become a prescription for... Those hunts, and that, what you're saying is they're, they're, they're trying to find inside their, their network yes. who's there. Exactly. They're, they're, looking, they're searching their homes and their backyards for an adversary that's already present. They've not been notified by law enforcement. They haven't been notified by a victim. They are proactively trying to make sure that no one else is in my house. Got it. Well, good. That would be a good addition. So now, next question is about cybersecurity culture. Mm. You know, the idea is that you know, the people are the perimeter, as one, one person put it today. And so you, there's no way that you're going to get out of, you know, having people have a cybersecurity mindset. On the other hand, it doesn't seem like a lot of companies have been effective in making that just a normal part of, of, of business so that, you know, it's other people, not, not the auditor that says, you know, don't put that post-it note of passwords on your, on your monitor. Yep. You know, uh, you know, that's when you have victory, when, it's, when it, everybody realizes that's a bad idea. Agreed. How do you create that, that mindset? Well, first of all, you have to have visibility into everyone's endpoint, particularly if the endpoint is owned by the corporation. So you need to be able to capture the unfiltered data from those endpoints to get any kind of telemetry on when this person is acting malevolently or idiotically as it relates to the environment around them. The another thing that's really quintessentially important here is that people should have just-in-time administration. Um, it's a term that's been used in the DOD for a while. There's no reason why everyone should have administrative privileges at all times. It, it makes it a lot easier for an adversary who pops or hacks that box um, to leverage lateral movement into your infrastructure. Uh, these people need to be made aware that cybersecurity is not an IT problem. It's not even straight a risk management problem. It's a brand protection problem. And whether it's the brand of the corporation or the brand of you 
as an individual or the reputation of you as an individual. Um, the day that you're found to be polluting your company and or polluting your friends or your wives or your in-laws computers because you've got malware on your device because you acted like an idiot, it's a day you really never come back from. Um, people in inherently will mistrust communications from you and thoughtfulness that you, es you espouse via digital means henceforth. So uh, I think we just need to change the psychology of this. Um, certain things that most of us would never do in public, uh, it's the same kind of behavior that you should s visualize vis-a-vis -vis your endpoint in a digital construct. Um, last question of my prepared ones is about cyber insurance. A lot of my uh, friends who are CTOs, CIOs, uh, and CISOs are often in the position of really feeling uncomfortable about buying cyber insurance but being forced into it and not, not knowing how to argue their way out of it. And uh, when you look at cyber security insurance, it's often policies that are written, and there's many other insurance domains like directors and officers insurance where there's huge amounts of exceptions and they seem to pay very seldom. They're, the claims are, not, are, are, are frequently not paid either because the insurance is written so narrowly or there's so many escape hatches. If you were a CISO, would you even try to, 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 to argue against a cybersecurity, a request for cybersecurity insurance, or would you just try to minimize the expense it, on it? It, it depends on the, on the business that I'm in. Um, look, most cyber insurance is advocated by general counsels uh, who are wary of the strategic acumen of their CISO. Um, most cyber, cyber insurance policies are, are not covering first uh, party risk. Um, they're basically covering the legal expenses, res the incident response expenses, and the notification expenses, not actually the loss itself, whether it's the theft of intellectual property or the theft of monies, etc. Recently, you see a major insurer saying the NotPetya infections leveraged by the Russians against the Ukraine that hit major cor corporations were acts of war. Um, soon they're going to say they're acts of God. Um, it's well known the insurance sector's pool of cyber insured is not large enough to take a real significant hit. Um, if it makes people feel better, I guess it does uh, allow them to sleep a little bit better at night. But I find it also funny that some of my competitors are offering insurance policies for when their product fails. Um, which is another example, I think, of the, the mythology behind the effectiveness of insurance in a market where the insurance isn't covering the first party loss and where the insurance can be essentially disavowed due to acts of war when we're literally dealing with a cyber insurgency in cyberspace. Got it. So your, 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 your uh, idea would be don't do it. Uh, in general, if you have the if you have the resources, do it. If you're in a traditional corporate business, but if you're in um, a business that has significant assets that involve intellectual property, or you're in the financial sector, um, or you're in a defense contractor, or if you're in an organization which could be leveraged to essentially create a systemic phenomenon through island hopping, where they commandeer your your infrastructure and then attack your constituency with it. Um, I think there's a better use of your funds. Got it. Okay, and so now you're coming out tomorrow with the bank heist report. Yes. Why don't you tell me the history of this report and what, what it's going to tell us? So back when I was at the World Bank, on the World Bank Treasury Security Team, the first time a report was written about attacks against financial sector was a, a book um, called Electronic Safety and Soundness in 2003. 
um, this book spoke to the trends of attack against financial institutions back in the day and what were the failures of the security posture and the failures of governance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Last year, my first year at Carbon Black, I decided to revisit this and to interview all of our major financial institution customers as well as our partner um, customers uh, specific to the threats that are being exhibited in the financial sector, but with more visibility than the Verizon data breach report. So the problem with the Verizon data breach report has always been, this is the vector, it's email. Well, they'll never talk about mobile. Chuckle, chuckle. Um, but this is the vector, and they stayed in for this many days, and this is what kind of malware was seen. Why did they stay in for that long? So we're trying to really dig at in the financial sector, how are the, the criminal conspiracies evolving? Um, how are they staying assistance for so long? And how are the, the most secure institutions and, and organizations of the world uh, being breached. And so some of the fun facts, uh, dark facts for that matter, are that 67% of them noted a dramatic increase of cyber attacks this past year that was not due to increased visibility. 79% of those um, said there was a, a massive manifestation of sophistication in the, in the cyber criminal underground, the dark web. Uh, unprecedented. Whether that was due to the fact that you have uh, U.S. government and uh, foreign nations military-grade cyber weapons being used nowadays widely, I'm not sure. Um, Seventy percent saw, saw lateral movement, which is that east-west traffic. It's that zero trust. They actually saw these folks moving within systems, between systems, uh, and then moving out of systems. So, so that means they got in. They not only got in, they were, they were moving deeper and deeper into the infrastructure and then trying to island hop into associated partners, subsidiaries, and or major customers. And the worst set um, was that there was a 160% increase of destructive attacks um, from last year. Which means the adversary, not only did they rob the bank, but now they turned it into a hostage situation. And they were doing this purposefully. I don't know whether it's because the cyber criminals have become more bellicose because they're being insulated by nation states because many of them are being used um, as a mechanism to offset economic sanctions. Yes, I said that. It's happening with the North Korean hacker crews. It's happening with the Russian hacker crews. It's happening with the Iranian hacker crews. Um, but what, what I found to be intriguing was that when the responders, the defenders, were conducting incident response, one out of three times, they were suffering from counter-incident response. And this speaks to something that we've been doing, I think, uh, wrong, in that we really need to change the way we conduct incident response. Okay, uh, We can no longer just flip on the lights and, and say just, we Just to make cops. it clear what you're talking about is that it's, it, the attacker became clear that they were now being, they, they had been detected mm -hmm. and that they were doing things to avoid detection. Then, and Then they were just starting to delete logs. They were dropping wipers into systems to destroy subnets. Uh, wipers being something that can literally take your machine back to the, to the rock ages. Um, yeah, no, and, and this type of knife fighting now between the defender and the attacker is significant because we used to deal with bank heists that were like smash and grab, break in, take the money from the teller. But this is different. And um, it speaks to the, the level of um, impunity that the adversaries are feeling. And it also speaks to the fact that they do not want to give up their footprint within the infrastructure, nor will they willingly leave. Um, it's something we should pay attention to. Uh, for example, we should not terminate command and control because there will always be a secondary command and control in a sleep cycle. So the second you immediately terminate command and control, you're letting them know you're onto them, and now you're having a secondary command and control that's typically hidden in, a, in an image file through steganography attack you from inside out when you think that they're gone.
And steganography? Steganography is the capacity to hide code and or messages within image files. Got it. And so it's very difficult to detect at scale across all image files in an infrastructure. And it's being widely used. This is an old Russian technique that was used during the Cold War that's now been used. And so it's been used by the Russian hacker community f for 20 years now. Um, but it's becoming mainstream. And it's becoming more elegant in how it's being leveraged against organizations. And they know that you're going to terminate that command and control. Right. They know the second you've terminated it, you're going to do the triage to clean up in the after action report, right? And then everyone thinks everything is dandy. It's not. It's not dandy. So Which is why you have to hunt more often. And then why do you think uh, um, the quality of the cyber criminal uh, uh, practices improved? So from the nation state perspective, North Korea has been a direct beneficiary of tech transfer from Russia and the Russian dark web. Um, in fact, the great irony of the North Korean attacks against the financial sector, which has they've pillaged billions of dollars, is most of those monies are going to the ballistic missiles and capabilities that are being provided by Russia for their nuclear armaments. Um, uh, the kill chain, the, the best kill chain in cyber, kill chain being the modus operandi of the steps that an adversary would take to hunt you in cyber, has always been the Russian dark web model, but I think more and more criminal syndicates and nation states are emulating that model, particularly as it relates to essentially the third phase of the kill chain that we would call maintaining a foothold. How do you maintain a foothold? How do you maintain persistence on a system? That's the real differentiator here, because the way that we are currently defending in cyber is still overly focused on perimeter defense and our incident response activities are overly focused on forensics and terminating the C2 without even imagining that the adversaries thought three steps, four steps beyond that. Got it. And what's the Russian dark web model? The Russian dark web model is they, they recon a, a target significantly. Um, they then deliver a customized piece of attack code, typically fileless malware or a zero-day exploit to an endpoint. The first thing they do when they compromise the endpoint is to escalate privileges or to uh, compromise credentials that will allow them to have super user access on the device. They then de deploy a RAT remote access trojan or a secondary C2 in a STEG file to the device. They then move laterally and do it again. The process of privilege escalation and deploying two forms of command and control, one of which on the sleep cycle. They're still quiet. They still haven't taken anything. They still haven't destroyed anything. <laughs> but they've, they've now seeded the environment. Got it. And they maintain their footprints. Many times they even patch the vulnerabilities they've exploited for the purposes of counter IR because they know one of the first things you'll do as a proactive CISO or IR person will scan to see if the host was even vulnerable to attack. Well, guess what? It's fully patched. Yeah. It got fully patched last night. Did you patch it? I didn't patch it. Did you patch it? I didn't patch it either. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, also, uh, I, th that reminds me of the, the, the funny part of the target exploit where um, the actual hackers encrypted their files. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing else was encrypted on the point of sale, but the only thing that was was the, the, that's right. the, the, hacker, uh, the hacker payloads. And that's just it. Like, they'll, they'll use your encrypted tunnels to run in because you cannot forensically work well with that. Um, this also goes to the whole blockchain discussion that everyone's having, thinking blockchain's the answer to everything. Look, blockchain is essentially distributed public key infrastructure. We've seen it before. The banks tried to protect transactions solely with this function before. The great weakness of blockchain and PKI always will be the two, to two ends of the tunnel, right? The security of the endpoint that can unlock the transaction, right? And either the, or the exchange itself. 
both of which are vulnerable. Most exchanges have terrible cybersecurity. Most endpoints are using legacy stuff to protect themselves. And so the hacker is going to go after the exchange or the endpoint. In fact, the, the level of crypto mining and crypto jacking that's occurring, the two countries that have most benefited from that are North Korea and Russia. In fact, it's so bad in Russia that they enacted a law in December of, of 2017 that stated that any cryptocurrency that was moved back into the financial sector, um, that they could not identify where it came from, you just pay a 13% tax. So there's a, there's a great report at the Wilson Center, a think tank in DC's website called Follow the Money, Civilizing the Dark Web that illustrates this type of phenomenon. But let us not forget, like, the greatest beneficiaries of this type of capability are the dark web. The beneficiaries of blockchain? Uh, of cryptocurrency and the, the phenomenon of cryptocurrency. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but blockchain itself, it just solves a non-repudiation element, right? Yeah. It, it's great for non-repudiation. It's true. It is fantastic for non-repudiation. But it doesn't solve the security of the endpoint of the endpoint of this, or the exchange yeah. itself. Well... TK, this was really fun. I enjoyed it. Thank, um, you. thank you so much for sharing your time with me. I appreciate it.